Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. So last week, we started a new series here called Asking for a Friend. And in this series, we're taking a couple weeks and we're digging into difficult questions, questions that someone might want, not want to admit they're, they are their own questions. So when you ask the question, you say, you know, I'm just asking for a friend. And then right away you can say, oh no, this is someone else's question. This isn't my question. But we're digging into some of these difficult topics together and we're taking a specific angle on these topics and we're saying we're looking at questions that our world, that people who maybe don't know Jesus yet, the people who aren't part of a faith community, questions that they are asking about the church. These are questions that sometimes, you know, they might come up in conversation, but they might not. But these are questions that are in people's minds that they have about following Jesus, about the church, about Christians. And we're diving into these so that we know these are the questions that are around us that the church gets asked to answer for at times. Now, these questions that we're digging into, they are some deep questions There are some deep-rooted issues. There might be some really strongly held beliefs about some of these questions that we're going to look at and we're going to examine together. And so I want to ask you to do something. If we're talking about these topics and you start to feel uncomfortable or you start feeling uneasy about it, there's a question you have to ask. We have to always ask ourselves, why? Why am I feeling uncomfortable when I hear this? Why does this make me feel upset or unsatisfied? Why does this make me feel prickly? And we need to get to the root of why. Why does this bother us? Because when we do that, we get to this point, this beautiful point, where we actually start letting Scripture shape our understanding. Instead of holding to a preconceived notion, we actually start to let Scripture replace things that we may have held to that aren't actually what God has intended or what God meant by Scripture. And so today we're talking about a topic that comes up quite often in conversation and quite often in our culture today, and that's this one. What's the deal with Christians and patriarchy? And if you don't know this phrase, patriarchy, let me give you a definition of it. Patriarchy is a system of organization where all influence and authority and power is held by men. And this is a perspective that our world thinks about when they look at the church. And they say, look at the church. 93, in a 2017 study by the Barna Group, 93% of all pastors in North America were men. You know, from the outside perspective, it looks like the church is patriarchal. But this question doesn't often come out this way, what's the deal with Christian and patriarchy? It comes out this way. It comes out with, why does the church treat women unfairly? Or, I can't be part of a church that is repressive to women. Or why are Christians so backwards? Why is the Bible so old-fashioned? And so these are the questions we're going to dive in today, and we're going to spend our whole time in Scripture and looking at what Scripture says about these topics, what, what happened in the Old Testament. We're going to look at what Jesus said, what Jesus did, and then we're going to spend a lot of time in Paul's writings today because as he was setting up and helping the church become the church. But we're asking this question specifically. What does Scripture actually say about the roles men and women can have in the church? What does the scripture actually say about authority? And to do this, before we get there, I want to do a little moment that I'm going to call our Bible Study 101 moment. This is about how do we understand scripture. And anytime we read a passage of scripture, there's a question that we need to ask of ourselves. How did the original audience understand this? Because scripture was not written to Grand Valley Church in 2019. 
Every letter, every book, every chapter of scripture was written with an intended audience in mind. When we look at Paul's letters, you know, Paul's letter to Rome is called Romans. We get those hints to it. But we need to, when we look at scripture, say, how did the original audience understand this first? Now, we have an advantage. We can also look at all of scripture. We can look at how scripture correlates, how these ideas grow and change. And we have that advantage that the early church didn't. And that's something we should be thankful for. And the second part of Bible Study 101 is there's a question we need to ask about each passage we read. It says this, is this a descriptive passage or a prescriptive passage? And so the difference of those two is a descriptive passage means that that passage is telling us this is how things were at that moment in time. And a prescriptive passage is a command that is like a prescription. It is something that tells us as followers of Jesus, this is how you are to act as followers of Jesus. These are our commands. These are the things that are for us to follow. So we're going to use those two questions as we go through each of these passages. How did the original audience understand this? Is this descriptive or prescriptive? And we're going to dig into this. So what does scripture actually say about the roles men and women can have in the church? And so we're going to start with the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is a patriarchal document because it was written in a culture that was entirely patriarchal. Men held all the power, all the means of production. That's the way it was. And in fact, in that world, and this makes me you know, uncomfortable even to say that this is how it was, but women were treated as property. They were the property of the eldest male in their household, whether that be their husband or their father or their eldest brother. Women were treated as a commodity, not a person. But the biggest development that happens, the biggest development that happens, happens very early on in Scripture. And it's this point in time where Moses has led the Israelites out of Egypt, and they're in the desert. They come to Mount Sinai to meet with God, and God gives the people the law. Now, the law is what shapes and defines how the Israelites were to interact with each other, how they were to interact with the world, how they were to interact with God. And when we read it today, when we read it today with our 21st century eyes, we look at the law and we go, that looks barbaric. And you know what? It feels like that when we read it. It does. That's why when I tell people, if you're reading through scripture for the very first time, just jump over Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Come back to them later. Just jump them for now. That's totally okay. Come back and read it later when you get a sense of how this fits into the bigger narrative. But the law had a very specific purpose. And when we read the law and we see things like, if you kill a neighbor's animal, you must give them one of yours to replace it. And we think, well, what's that about? Like, what's this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth approach? The purpose of the law in that day was to limit retribution. Because the way their culture worked, if, if you know, let's say you were hunting and you mistakenly killed a neighbor's animal, that neighbor would then gather there, all the men of that household together, they would come and they would steal or slaughter a group of your livestock. Now you are at a position of financial loss and you need to fight back, so you gather all your people and you go back and now you take their whole herd away. And you see how it escalates. That is the prehistoric world that the Israelites were in. Everything escalated. And so when the law puts boundaries on things, it was actually about limiting the retribution and getting to a place of justice by restitution, of saying there is a limit to the justice you can enact. And fully, about a third of the law was actually hygienic in nature. It was about protecting the people. There's whole chapters on how to tell if a, skin, if a wound on your skin is infected or diseased. 
You know, it's really an argument can be made that the Bible contains the world's first medical textbook. That was the purpose of those portions of the law. But when it comes to women, there's one passage that we're going to look at that is representative of this. And when we read this, again, our 21st century eyes get upset when we read this, but let's look at it through a prehistoric Israelite eyes. And it says this, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 to 2. Suppose a man marries a woman, but she does not please him. Having discovered something wrong with her, he writes a document of divorce, hands it to her, sends her away from his house. When she leaves his house, she is free to marry another man. Now, just to clarify, the first two lines of that, suppose a man marries a woman, but she does not please him, that does not mean that she burnt his food once. That doesn't mean that at all. This is actually referring specifically to adultery and sexual immorality. That's the the criteria. It's not just, oh, you upset me, bye. That's not what that was at that time. But here's the thing. This law is actually creating a right for women in their culture. Because life before Levitical law, this passage would read completely different. So let me share with you, this is what this passage would read before the law. Suppose a man marries a woman, but she does not please him. He sends her away from his house. When she leaves his house, she is accused of adultery, rejected by her family, condemned to a life of poverty, slavery, or death. And most of the time, it was death. See, the law was actually about protecting women in this case. That if she is sent away from the household, he must give her a document. And that document protects her from the accusation of adultery. That document allows her to marry again. That document gave her some little measure of rights in their society. This was a progressive first step that protected women from being accused of adultery. So even in the Old Testament, even in the depths of the Levitical law, there is this beginning movement of God granting rights to protect women. Now, we're going to jump ahead. We don't have the time to dig into all the stories of the Old Testament women who broke the rules of patriarchy, who God used to do amazing, powerful things and save Israel time and time again. We don't have the time for that. Maybe that's another series down the road. But we're going to move to the New Testament. This is where we're going to spend our time today. And in the New Testament, when you get to that first century, things have progressed a bit. It is not a culture of equality. Women are still mostly regarded as property, but they have some rights that have been enshrined to them. There's some progress happening. But we're going to look at the New Testament passages in two categories, and I I owe a thanks to a professor of New Testament theology from Northern Seminary in Chicago named Scott McKnight for this. He's the one who introduced me to these two categories. And the New Testament has these two categories that relate to the roles of women in authority. The first is what women did. There are the examples in Scripture of what women did in the New Testament. And then there's the passages we call the women keep silent. They're the passages that we read that say that women should be silent in the church. And so we're going to look at those two categories today. And we're going to start with what women did in the New Testament. What are the examples that come up? And the first example, we're going to go to the life of Jesus. In Luke 10, Jesus has been traveling with his disciples for quite some time now, and Jesus is a rabbi. He's a teacher of the law. And teachers of the law had a specific way that they taught. They had their group of disciples who were following the teacher to learn how to replicate their teacher. So Jesus' disciples had a front row seat to everything Jesus did. And it was quite literally a front row seat. Every time a rabbi of any stature in all of Israel would teach. Their disciples sat in the very front row. My front row is empty. I don't know what that means about this. Side note. 
Every time Jesus taught, his disciples sat front row. So, Luke 10, 38, as Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed them into her home. Martha's sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught. When we see this sat at the Lord's feet, we just carry on, oh yeah, she listened to his teaching. No, no, this was deeply controversial. Jesus allowed Mary to sit amongst his disciples right at his feet in a place of honor so that she could learn what he was saying. And Martha gets upset about this. Martha is trying to prepare a meal for Jesus and all his disciples. She's working hard. She's trying to be the, use her gift of hospitality. She's trying to prepare everything. And she actually comes to Jesus. And, I mean, she's assertive. She's like, this is impressive. She comes to Jesus, this respected Jewish rabbi, this teacher, and says, Mary is not helping me. You need to tell her to come and help me prepare the food for you. But this is what Jesus responds. He says, My dear Martha, you are worried and upset over these details. There is one thing worth being concerned about, and Mary has discovered it. It will not be taken from her. Jesus had the opportunity to send her back to what was socially the right place for her to be in her culture in that day, and he refused. Jesus kept her in a place of honor. And now we're going to move to some other examples through the New Testament. And we're going to start with the end of the letter of Rome because Paul ended his letters always with greetings with people that he wanted them to say hi to or to know or to have updates about what they were doing. And he says this in Romans 16, verse 7. He says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who are in prison with me. They are highly respected among the apostles and became followers of Christ before I did. Now, I want you to note the name Junia. That is a female name. Paul is talking about these two people. There's no indication that they were husband and wife. These were just two people that were with him at different times in his journey. He says, they were in prison with me and highly respected among apostles. Now, to be considered an apostle, that means you were an influential early church leader. You were a church planter. You had the authority to go and plant churches. And Junia is regarded as being highly respected among apostles. She is highly respected amongst the leadership of the early church. So Paul is pointing out as he greets her, remember, she is highly respected. And then if we go to the book of Acts, there's this guy who shows up called Apollos. And Apollos is an eloquent speaker. He's teaching in the synagogues about Jesus, but he doesn't have the whole picture. And so in Acts 18... Luke records this. He says, When Priscilla and Aquila heard Apollos preaching boldly in the synagogue, they took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. It goes on to say he understood about John's baptism, but he didn't understand about the Holy Spirit. And so Priscilla and Aquila, who are a husband and wife, but there's something unique here. Every single manuscript, every single copy of the letter we have dating as far back as we go, always puts Priscilla first. And that is not a mistake. Scribes always put things in the order of importance. Whoever was the primary leader went first. It's not even alphabetical. Priscilla is put first because Paul, or Luke is pointing out that she is the leader. She is the one who is instructing Apollos about the Holy Spirit. And we have one more we're going to look at as well. That We're going to go back to Romans 16. And Paul starts the ending chunk of his letter this way, and he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a deacon in the church of Sancria. 
Welcome her into the Lord as one who is worthy of honor amongst God's people. Help her in what she needs, for she has been helpful to many and especially to me. So when Paul says, I commend to you, that, what that's telling us is that Phoebe was the person who was the messenger. Remember, there's no real mail system at this point. Like, if you wanted to send a letter, you had to privately hire someone, or you gave it to someone you trusted, and they would deliver that letter by hand to its recipient. There's no, there's no Canada Post or Roman Post at this point in history. And what it says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a deacon in her church. She is saying to them, this Phoebe, who is bringing this letter to you, is a leader of her church. Now, to be a letter bearer in the first century was actually a mark of respect and honor because what that meant is when Phoebe went to Rome, when she got there, and when they gathered the church together to say, hey, we have a letter from Paul, we're going to read it together, we're going to learn from Paul together, Phoebe is the one who stands at the front of the gathering and reads the letter. And not only that, she would be entrusted to interpret and explain and answer all the questions that the Roman church would have about the letter to Romans. And if you've ever done a study through Romans, it is a dense letter. It's the largest letter that Paul wrote. And Paul is entrusting Phoebe to be the one to stand at the front and teach this letter to the Roman church. So when we look at what women did in the New Testament, we have Mary is treated as an equal to Jesus' disciples. Junia is highly respected amongst church planters and church leaders. Apostle was the title of highest authority in the early church. Priscilla teaches Apollos about the Holy Spirit. And Phoebe, who is a deacon, a church leader, delivers and interprets Paul's letter to the Roman church. This is actually pretty big. And this is, you know, we see these in little pieces all throughout the New Testament. But there is a narrative, a common thread through this. And that is that women held positions of authority and leadership in the New Testament that were integral to the gospel ministry of the church. That is what women did in the first century. We can't deny that because this is what scripture tells us. When the people, when we say, how do the original audience understand this? Well, these were their leaders. These were the people they looked up to as examples. These were the people that were instructing them. And was this descriptive or prescriptive? Well, these are all descriptive. They tell us exactly what happened in the church in the first century. But that's the first category. This is the what women did. And then we're also going to look at three passages that fall under the women keep silent category. Passages that we look at and say, well, these are passages that say that women should not have authority in the church. And so we're going to look at these. Now, there is one more passage that we're not going to look at because it is an exact repetition of one of the passages we are going to look at. So when I say there's three, there's actually four, but we're leaving one out because it's just a complete repetition, because it was just Paul saying the same thing in a different letter. So we're going to look at two letters and three passages of them, 1 Timothy 2.12, 1 Timothy 3.1-2, and 1 Corinthians 14. So let's start with Timothy. 1 Timothy 1 starts and opens with this. This letter is from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. I am writing to Timothy, my true son in the faith. So our first thing, when we look at this letter, we say, what, who was the original audience of this letter? Well, it was Timothy. And who is Timothy? Timothy was Paul's protege. He was basically Paul's disciple, who Paul encouraged and trained and taught and took with him on his journeys, and then set up Timothy to lead after Paul, because Paul knows his fate is he is going to go to Rome in chains. And he knows that he will not be able to lead the church forever. And so he is handing things off to Timothy. Timothy is Paul's successor. 
And the next verse of this, opening this letter, setting the scene for it, Paul writes this. He says, when I left for Macedonia, I urge you to stay there in Ephesus and stop those whose teaching is contrary to the truth. Now, just to give you a nutshell of Ephesus. Ephesus is a major trade city, but it was also the center of worship to a deity that was kind of an amalgamation of a lot of their cultural deities, and also they they kind of seemed to grab little bits of Roman and Greek deities and put together, and they called her Artemis. And Ephesus was the center of worship to Artemis. And in fact, when we read Acts, when Paul went there and he started to preach, it was the silversmiths who made statues of Artemis for money that started the riot that got Paul kicked out of Ephesus the first time. And so there is a history of a combat of nature between the church and the followers of Artemis. And so Paul tells Timothy, you are there for a reason. You are there to stop false teaching. That is your goal in this. And so when we read Paul's letter to Timothy, we need to be aware we are reading a private letter about the situation Timothy is facing in the city of Ephesus. And so here we get to the passage that everyone kind of points to on this women keep silent. 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 to 12. says this, Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. There is something deeply, deeply controversial in this, in this passage. There is something that when you look at this, it should make your blood boil if you are a first century person. And you know what it is? Women should learn. This was the most controversial thing that Paul said in that moment because in first century society, women were not educated. Women were not permitted to be educated. Maybe if they had wealth and money and came from that, then women would be taught. But the general perspective of all of first century society, all of Greco-Roman area, all of that whole region, was women are not to learn. You don't educate women. And in fact, we even see this today. We see this today in countries that are facing abject poverty. There is a direct correlation between the education of women and countries and places where the whole society is in abject poverty. The education of women directly correlates to countries being able to take steps forward economically and progressively and lift themselves out of poverty. So when Paul says women should learn those first three words, that's the moment where Timothy is like, yeah, I know this because I walked with you, I saw this, I saw what women did alongside you. But to the church, this was one of the big criticism that the people of Ephesus had about the church is what do you mean you are teaching women that is wrong? So Paul says women should learn And then we go on. So let's do a deep dive into this. And normally when I'm preparing a message, I dig into the Greek a bit. I dig into the original languages. But to be honest, most of the time it doesn't make a good preaching point. It doesn't make a point that carries across. But this is a passage that is different. This is a passage where digging into the Greek, digging into the exact words that Paul used, how those words were understood in the first century makes a big difference. And so we're going to do that. So so bear with me on this. It's going to get a little technical for a moment. Paul says this, women should learn quietly and submissively. When we see the word submissive with our 21st century eyes, we immediately think power differential. We think there is a dominant position and a submissive position. We think there is power over and power under. And Paul is saying women should have power under men. Women should be under men's authority. That's how we read this. But the exact Greek word that Paul uses did not imply that power difference. The exact Greek word that Paul used translates to without rebellion. 
And it was used constantly in the first century. We can see this word in other writings of that era to see how it was used. And what it meant was you are in alignment with those around you. It meant you are not in open rebellion against your leadership. A citizen of Rome was considered submissive if they agreed with what Rome was trying to do. This is not about a power differential. This is saying women should learn quietly and without rebellion. Women should learn in ways that help them be in alignment with the church. That changes it a little bit, doesn't it, when we dig into the Greek? There's one more. And this is a, this is a grammatical thing that happens. We know that words can have plural and singular. If I say, hey, you, I could mean, hey, you, single, or hey, you, plural. You know, we're not in the deep south. We don't say y'all, which we know you is one and y'all is a group, or all y'all is a large group. You know, we, we have those distinctions. But when Paul wrote this in, in the Greek, he used specific plural and singular distinctions that are different in verses 11 and 12 that he doesn't use elsewhere when he gives commands to the church. So when Paul writes this instruction to Timothy, he uses what's called a definite singular article. He uses the woman, singular and specific. Paul is referring to a specific unnamed woman who is causing issues in the church in these two verses. So let me read this passage to you as it would be in the original Greek as Paul wrote it to Timothy to be, give him instruction for how to deal with the situation in Ephesus. Paul says, the woman should learn quietly and without rebellion. I do not let the woman teach men or have authority over them. Let her listen quietly. All of a sudden, this passage looks very different to us, doesn't it? When we dig into what Paul literally wrote. Paul doesn't name her. And he does so specifically because to put her name in this is to commit slander. To put her name in this is to call her out in front of the church and mean that this woman could not repent. She would be cast out if Paul named her. So Paul doesn't name her so that she can have an opportunity to repent and come back in alignment with the church. That changes this passage significantly. See, Paul's guidance for Timothy is prescriptive for him. This is telling Timothy how to handle that situation. But it is not prescriptive for us today. It is descriptive for us today, telling us this is what Timothy needed to do to solve the situation he was facing in Ephesus. Huh. Interesting. So let's look at the next one. We go a little further down. Paul then writes this to Timothy. He says, if someone aspires to be an elder, he desires an honorable position. So an elder must be a man whose life is without reproach. And he goes on to list about a dozen character requirements of leadership in the church. Now there's something also in this that we need to note. Paul says, must be a man whose life is without reproach. Oftentimes we look at that and we focus on a man. That's the important part. But Paul spends so much more time talking about character and spiritual gifting and his requirement for who an elder should be. In fact, male-only leadership was a product of the first century society that Paul and Timothy lived in. In the first century, to have a church entirely led by women would be completely dismissed and disregarded by anyone outside the church. Paul is still a product of the society and the time that he lived in. And so when we read this, Again, remember, Paul is telling Timothy this, and this is the passage that gets repeated in Titus when Paul is writing another personal letter to one of his followers called Titus who is setting up churches in a different area of the world. 
The reason why male-only leadership was the norm was because that was their society. But all the requirements about what it means to be a leader, none of them require being a man. All of them require what's your character, what's your spiritual gifting. And we know that those are things that all followers of Christ are called to, to dig into and lean into our spiritual gifting, to dig in and lean into our character so that the Holy Spirit is transforming and shaping us so that we can reveal Christ to the world. That's the emphasis. What's our character at? What's our spiritual gifting at? What are we doing to lean into those? And then we come to our last passage that gets referred to in this women keep silent category, and that is in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33 to 35. And let me start and phrase this. This is Paul writing to a church that was deeply troubled. If you were here in the spring and we did our series on spiritual gifts, Paul spends tons of time talking about spiritual gifts because the Corinthian church was getting it wrong. In fact, if you want to feel good about our church today, just read the first half of 1 Corinthians and go, man, it's so good we're not dealing with those problems, right? That should be every pastor's most encouraging passage. We're not the guy leading the Corinthian church. It's all good. But let me read this to you, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33. Paul says, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the meetings of God's holy people. And I'm going to do the grammatical work on this next passage for us first. Paul then tells the Corinthian church, These women should be silent during the church meetings. He uses the plural definite article, meaning he is talking to a group and it is a specific group. These women should be silent during the church meetings. It is not proper for them to speak. They should be without rebellion. Your Bible would say submission because that is the word we, the translators traditionally use for it, but really it means they should be learning in alignment. They should be learning without disagreement. Just as the law says, if they have questions, they should ask their husbands at home for it is improper for these women to speak in church meetings. So what's going on here? What's the problem that Paul is addressing? We can reflectively read this to know what Paul was writing about. The women in this passage were new believers who were derailing the church's gatherings with their questions. Now, we want to encourage questions. Questions are good. I love sitting down over a cup of coffee or at someone's kitchen table, and let's dig through difficult questions because we know when we dig into questions, the Holy Spirit always reveals truth. And so the more we ask questions, the more truth we will find. But in the church in Corinth, there was this group of new believers that were exercising their freedom in their faith. And they were asking so many questions that the church couldn't actually do what the church was meant to do. So Paul's telling them, this group of women, they need to learn at home and act in an orderly fashion. They shouldn't be derailing the whole church gathering. So you know what that means? We actually have the solution today for what Paul needed then. Paul needed something so desperately in the Corinthian church. He didn't have, but we have it now. You want to know what that is? The church in Corinth needed life groups. The church in Corinth needed places where people could gather in homes to study scripture, to share their lives with each other, to encourage one another, to ask questions, to wrestle through stuff. That's what Corinth needed. And guess what? We have life groups. And in fact, life group sign-up starts in next week. Our next group link event is coming up on September 19th. I think it's the 19th. If I'm wrong, I'm sorry. I will correct it next week. Group link is starting up, and that is the time for you to say, I want to be part of a group of people that is going to help us dig into Scripture. We're going to dig into what God says. We're going to share our lives with one another. We're going to pray. We're going to serve each other. And that is one of the most amazing places for spiritual growth to happen. The stories that have been coming out of this last season of life groups has been amazing. And so next week, we are opening up our life group sign-up for us to start preparing for another amazing time of people's lives growing deeper in their walk with God. 
That's what Paul needed. Paul needed life groups, and he didn't have them then, but we have them now. So let's ask our two questions again. How would the original audience have read this? Well, we have this group of women who are causing problems. We need to help them learn in a constructive way. That's what that passage is getting at. And was it descriptive or prescriptive? Well, Paul's guidance, again, was prescriptive for the Corinthians, telling them what to do, but it is descriptive for us. It's telling us what happened. So, how do we summarize this? How do we understand this? Well, when we look at Scripture, when we look at the Old Testament, the law starts to give small rights to women, starts moving in that direction. Then we have Jesus lets women sit at his feet with his disciples in a place of honor. Then we have in the New Testament, we have women acting as prominent church leaders doing work that is integral to the gospel ministry. And then we have Paul's teachings about leadership that, yes, they are gendered, but the emphasis is always on spiritual gifting and character. So through scripture, there is a constant and consistent movement away from patriarchy and towards equality. There is a constant progressive movement through scripture from start to finish. And you might say, well, how do we know about that? Where do we end on that? I want to take us to one last passage, and we're going to talk about this to wrap things up today. Paul wrote a letter to the Galatian church. And when he wrote it to the Galatian church, he was writing it to a group of churches. And he's trying to explain to them what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And he uses this declaration to say who they are as followers of Jesus. And we find this in Galatians 3, verse 26 to 27, or 29. We're going to go a little further than 27. Paul says this, For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. All, inclusive, plural language, all. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism, so hey, if you want to get baptized, just talk to us. We'll set up the tank anytime you want. We'll do baptisms. There are time to celebrate. All who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. This means you're shedding your old nature and you're putting on the new nature of Christ. And he says this, there is no longer Jew or Gentile. That was one of the biggest splits happening in the church of could you be a Christian and not be a Jew? And the answer was definitely yes. It's what a huge part of the New Testament is all about. There is no longer Jew or Gentile. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs. And God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. That is a massive statement. This is what Paul is getting at in his teachings. So that we can lean in to who God has called us to be. Now, there is a teaching in this that one of my theology professors, he used this term, and it's brilliant. He called them time bomb teachings. He said there are time bomb teachings in Scripture. And when he said this in lecture, like it was late in the day and all of us are ready to just like leave class and and all all of us in the class kind of went, what? What are you talking about? Time bomb teachings? What does that mean? What that means is that Paul and Jesus both gave teachings that they knew would not be understood and realized in their day and time. But what they knew was that the Holy Spirit would guide the church to understand this truth, that these lessons would not be accepted until the Holy Spirit revealed their truth. And let me give you an example of this. 
We're going to talk about something mentioned in that Galatians passage. We're going to talk about slavery for a moment. If you read the Bible, a literal surface reading, the Bible is pro-slavery. It is. That makes us uncomfortable, and it should. But the Bible is pro-slavery. And in fact, we see the same thing happen with slavery in Scripture. The old covenant, the law, actually gave rights to slaves, actually protected slaves from undue punishment. And then in the New Testament, we see the church moving and saying that slaves should be accepted in the church. They should be allowed to come to the church gatherings. Paul even says you need to start regarding slaves as your equals before Christ in that Galatians passage. He even tells slaves, Paul gives kind of this, we could say this is an implication that says slavery is okay, but Paul told slaves, if that's your situation, stay as you are. It doesn't matter before Christ because you are accepted by Christ. He does say, if you can get your freedom, go for it. And then we even have a letter. The letter of Philemon is about a runaway slave who ran away and joined Paul on his journey. And Paul is sending this runaway slave back to his owner with this letter to Philemon saying, hey, you should accept him as a brother instead of accepting him back as a slave. He's saying, you, you, he owes is owed a punishment for running away. Paul admits that, but he says, instead, you should accept him as a brother. See, it took 1,700 years for the church to realize that message. The abolitionist movement that started to end slavery in the United Kingdom, that moved towards Canada and North America and was about ending slavery here, and we still have a ton of work to do for ending slavery in the world. Slavery is not dead, even though we wish it was. Slavery is a time bomb teaching. Scripture started a movement with constant and consistent movement towards saying that slavery should not exist. Humans should not own other humans. That is a time bomb teaching. And when it comes to this, when it comes to the new covenant that Christ created, authority and leadership in the church is determined by spiritual gifts, not gender. When we look at the Old Testament, you can surface read it, you can skim over what Paul really meant, and we can create a system of the church that represses women. And it is true that for a lot of our history, the church has not treated women equally and fairly. So what do we do next? Here's what we start with. We start with listening, and we start with apologizing. We need to start with listening to the stories that women have of their spiritual gifts being thwarted, of their callings given to them by God being thwarted and prevented by male leadership. We need to listen to those stories, and we need to apologize. And I certainly hope, and I've tried to live this out all the days of my life, that gender is equal before God because that is what scripture tells and that is what scripture presents to us. So if you are here and you felt that your calling, something God intended for you to do, was harmed by a church, any church, I want you to hear this. I am sorry. The church apologizes to you and asks for your forgiveness. Can you allow us to say we were wrong, we didn't mean to treat you that way, And we don't want to treat you that way moving forward. And so I want to offer this to you, even if I wasn't the one who offended you. I am sorry for how you were treated. I apologize for the way that our church has handled women for the last 2,000 years. And it needs to change. And we will start that change by listening to your stories. By listening and understanding the way that the church has hurt women. The next thing we're going to do is this. Is we need to recognize and encourage spiritual gifts. When we see gifts of leadership 
gender is irrelevant. When we see gifts of leadership and when we see the Holy Spirit trying to do something in your life, male or female, we need to be an environment that encourages and nurtures and helps people to lead in that. Because if we don't, we are preventing God's kingdom from doing what the Holy Spirit wants our kingdom to do and wants the church to do. So we cannot thwart the Holy Spirit because of your gender. That ends. As a church, we need to make this commitment. And when I said at the beginning, this is an uncomfortable teaching, some of us have had years of being taught the opposite, of years being taught the surface reading of those passages, of years ignoring it. In fact, this is the one that bothers me the most. Junia, female name. In the fourth century, there was an effort made to change Junia's name to Junius because that's the male version. And in fact, a lot of Bibles today still say Junius. In fact, I was at a, this is really bad. This was when I was younger, a little more impulsive. I was in a Christian bookstore and I was looking at grabbing a new Bible and I picked one up and it said Junius and I wanted to pull up my pen and cross it out and write Junia and put it back on the shelf. I mean, I didn't, I wanted to. But some of us have heard that teaching and I want to ask you, to say, are you willing to understand why does it make you uncomfortable when I say that this is what Scripture says? I want to ask you to take some time and dig into that. I will sit down. I will have a coffee with you anytime you want. The coffee's on me. We'll talk through this because I believe this is so important to helping the church achieve the mission we have called, been called to do. So when someone says to you, when someone says, man, the church is old-fashioned, your Bible is repressive, you know, the truth is, it is in the first century, in our pre-literate, pre-historic, patriarchal era. Yes, it was patriarchal because the whole society was patriarchal. But then you have the opportunity. You have the opportunity to say, but that is not what Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit have intended. That is not what the Trinity means. That is not what God wants for the church. And you have the opportunity to walk through and be part of someone's healing from how they have been mistreated because of their gender. You have that opportunity to bring Christ's love and healing, and hope to that person in that moment. Don't miss out on those points. Think about what the church could have achieved if we had understood this years earlier, decades, centuries, thousand years earlier. How different could our world be? So let's end, and let me pray for us. God, you created us in your image, male and female. You created us with purpose, with reason. You created us so that you could be in a relationship with us and you could show love to us. And Lord, we are sorry for the times when we have treated people less because of their gender. Lord, we are sorry for the times that people have been hurt, when gifts have been squashed. And Lord, we repent of that corporately. And so Lord, as we move forward as a church, would you help us to pause and slow down and listen, to listen to the stories. Lord, I pray that you would be doing a work of healing here. A work of healing the wounds that people might have and might be carrying when someone told them, no, you can't do that, or you can only teach the kids. Lord, would you heal those wounds? Would you replace them with your truth and with your love and with your presence? Lord, we sang a song earlier, the king of my heart. Would you be the king of our hearts? Would you reshape our understandings to be in line with your heartbeat? And Lord, we pray these things together as a community of faith because we know that you have so much love to give. You love people who do not know you yet 
And we are sorry for the times when our actions get in the way of you showing your love to people. So Lord, would you forgive us for how we've acted? And would you help us live with grace and with love and with honesty and with truth? In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray this. Amen. Phew. So if you think that was heavy, come back next week. (laughs) See you next Sunday at 11 o'clock. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.